0: If other people have no idea why a person is behaving in a particular way, especially if you're counting on them, that will start to raise distance, isolation, confusion. And I think what I was trying to get into earlier, which I hear from couples all the time, is that then someone starts to project their own narrative onto the person's behavior. And what people always say is, well, because you don't Tell me what's going on, I, I have to think either the worst or I have to assume. <laughs> and that is probably one of the single biggest things that gets people into trouble when there's a, a lack of information. And so, so much of my professional work, especially when it comes to things like shame, where it takes time, where I'm discovering it with the individual in the moment where they might just notice their heart, for instance, going faster. They might be able to just simply say, I'm uncomfortable right now. The metaphor that I always use is that that's as if someone's door has been closed, someone's been banging on it, knocking on it, trying to find a key, and then all of a sudden you start to see a bit of light creep out from the crack, and and there's immediate relief. Welcome to the Dignity of Suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist author and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to episode 29. This is actually one of my favorite numbers as I was born on the 29th of April. So, feels kind of special and uh, also on the verge of 30 episodes. And, you know, as I was contemplating kind of slowing down and reimagining parts of this podcast, more and more people who walk into my office are sharing with me that they kind of get to know me here in this space and feel in some ways that they already know a bit about me before they walk through my door and it's an interesting feeling in some ways it's kind of nice to have this forum to go into aspects of what I love and what I do it's also a space that's quite personal and I'm trying not to push myself to perform or create something that doesn't feel germane to my mission On that note, I'm sort of in the middle of what I've conceived as a kind of three part series looking at shame. And in thinking about today's episode, I thought about maybe conveying some very clear ideas that come from the science of emotion. I was reflecting on the last podcast and realized that I kind of went in many directions and kind of circumambulated around the idea of shame. But for today, I thought maybe of zeroing in on some concepts that are extremely helpful when I'm working and perhaps even when I'm reflecting on myself. And specifically what I'm referring to is the notion of the way that emotions get organized in the human being. So one idea that we often talk about is the notion of action tendencies and an action tendency is something that someone might do in response to an emotional signal in their body so a very clear example for instance that happens in relationships all the time is that because underwriting relationships is always a very strong attachment system meaning There is a lot that is at stake, especially if you have a family, especially if you really care about somebody, especially if you rely on them for a whole range of things, emotional comfort, financial support, then when we get into some of the territory of feeling like you have done, let's say, something wrong, or someone comes to you and expresses that you have disappointed them in some way. (laughs) How one responds to those basic emotions, first of all, varies quite dramatically. Second of all, whether that moment is going to feel kind of repaired and whether it has the potential to even bring two people closer together is highly dependent on one's ability to be able to be present with and understand one's emotional response. So an action tendency can look like somebody, to use the cliche, trying to fix it. You know, somebody feels like they're letting their partner down or letting somebody down at work, and they go into a kind of hurried response to fix it because they're worried something bad will happen. So when we, when we talk about notions such as shame, which many people carry from having felt like they let others down going all the way back to childhood, and we can get into ancestry in a moment, those experiences will color how overwhelming a particular moment is for somebody. Now, when it comes to ancestry and why this is very important and why there is a huge range of how people respond is that someone who comes from a family history where people had to survive, people became refugees, people had to leave countries for political asylum, people left because of poverty, people left because of violence, all of these historical details are are extremely important because i was sitting with a friend yesterday and we were we were discussing the fact that the cardiovascular system for instance something as basic as blood pressure or heart rate we know that when one is in survival mode these basic systems Get elevated in order to send signals to the human being to be vigilant, and I've referenced before on this podcast notions of epigenetics or looking into what's something called diathesis stress, which is when one is in an environment and there are particular signals in that environment, as in something is wrong, how the the basic Nervous system, cardiovascular system respond to the exact same stimuli can vary from person to person and can also be significantly impacted by history. If you come from a family and people talk about this all the time, you know, if you come from a, a, an immigrant family that had to really uh, fight hard to survive and You know, relied on these kinds of expressions like no rest for the wicked, or then you might find yourself in moments of vulnerability gearing up, going into high arousal. Now, there's two components that make this conversation important from the point of view of relationship, which have to do with what's called sort of interpersonal or intrapersonal, or we say interpsychic or intrapsychic, which has to do with the difference between the relationship between two people and the relationship between a person and themselves. And to start with the latter, if one person goes into high arousal when it comes to their own vulnerability, that might, for instance, hide from that person basic emotions such as feeling ashamed around something that they have done. And so they may cover that over with behavior, with pursuing something. I think we all have that. As I say it, I can recognize that in myself, that if I get worried about how something is going to turn out, I might turn up the gears to make sure things are successful. And of course, even as I say this out loud, it's worth noting that there's nothing wrong with in certain circumstances reacting to a signal within oneself to propel oneself to finish, do better, complete something successfully, be somewhere on time. You know, a simple example is if you were going for an interview, for instance, and you, you know, want it very badly. And if you're running late, you may start to feel that feeling of dread, you know, that if you don't show up, it might be a bit shameful that you could not make it somewhere on time. So these these signals within us are useful and they're not pathological a lot of the time, meaning they're not something that we need to kind of dissect and and somehow ameliorate. The issue becomes more pronounced or problematic When there is a greater demand to open up and talk about what one is going through. So you could imagine this, for instance, in a work scenario where an employee who feels uh, a lot of pressure and perhaps they've made a mistake before or were, were told that something was subpar about their work. The next time they may enter into a situation where they feel nervous that they're going to fail, they might not share those emotions because that might constitute weakness or some kind of disability. And so the action tendency in this circumstance might be that they would hide this fact and kind of soldier on and perhaps disconnect from a team. Or from expectations and the lack of information for those that are working with them may create distance and instability and a kind of anxiety. <laughs> and so you can quickly see how not being able to tolerate feelings of, of shame in a social context, in a, in a work context, for instance, may start to leave people in the dark, and then you lose what we tend to call in our field, you lose attunement, right? You lose this kind of good enough attunement amongst, for instance, a team at work or someone who's who's running a project. And one idea that I was thinking about coming to the podcast today that I see so frequently with couples is this idea that when there is a lack of information, Let's say, for instance, to use the example I gave earlier, that someone comes to their partner and says, hey, this is bothering me, (laughs) and the other person panics and says internally, oh, if I don't somehow find a way to fix this, this person is going to eventually get tired of me, or this person may see me as somehow defective even if these are unconscious thoughts, then the person goes into action and thinks to themselves, well, hey, I'm doing what the person asked me. I am trying to better myself and do something different. And often what I find, and I think what a lot of me and my colleagues find when you're looking at at couples is that, ironically, the person who came with their lament or their, what we call in the jargon, their bid for attachment, as in, do you see me or "Do you, can you recognize that this is an issue? What you'll see is that because somebody may shut down around their shame, as in, I'm going to not express that this is hurting me or your comments are affecting me in a way where my blood pressure goes up or I start to feel anxious or I start to worry about my, my safety. If that language can't be manifested and constituted and it just goes into action, the person just tries harder or buries their head in the sand and, and ruminates on how to figure it out. What, what you often notice is, is a kind of gap in intimacy. So the other person who came looking for some kind of reassurance over time doesn't feel reassured. If anything, they feel like their partner pulls away, starts to feel more bad about themselves. And then, and then you have this, this vicious loop that builds over time. And this goes more into what I was referring to earlier as the interpersonal, right? So rather than the anxiety that's created within the person, the intrapersonal, as in I, Feel disconnected from myself. I just feel like I'm behaving in a particular way and I don't know why, you know. Then you get into the interpersonal, which mirrors in some ways that kind of disconnect. And the metaphor that I've been using lately in my work is the equivalent when it comes to emotional intelligence or the ability for the human being to put language metaphor to symbolize their their physiological symptoms the metaphor i've been using lately is the equivalent of of sitting somebody in front of a piano and saying hey can you can you play for me on the piano what it feels like to be ashamed for instance or or angry and someone who doesn't know how to play the piano will probably if it was me You know, either take my fists if I was angry and kind of just smash the keys or maybe find one note, maybe a dark note, you know, a low note that kind of sounds a bit shameful and maybe hit that a few times. But you wouldn't have a very sophisticated representation of these emotions. Whereas if you sat somebody down who had been practicing the piano their whole life, then They would probably be able to imagine a piece of music, for instance, a sophisticated piece of music. If they were a classical pianist, they could probably choose something. Beethoven or Shostakovich, for instance, you know, who wrote during the war, you know, find something quite dramatic that has different levels and tones and parts of it to kind of tell somebody a story about how they're feeling. And and it would probably be more moving and more gratifying, to be honest, if someone sat down and could play you something. So I, I think it's an apt metaphor for emotional intelligence because, and I think this is a very important caveat where people get very confused. And... The caveat is that in some circumstances, two people may have a very easy way of understanding their emotional responses. For instance, in some circumstances, if two people grew up in a similar religion, in a similar town or city, had a similar ethnic background, you you may have a lot more scaffolding around how people behave, why they behave in a certain way. It doesn't mean that people are happy at all. That doesn't create good, solid intimacy just because you're from the same place. But often there will be references that will help somebody orient around, for instance, certain gender identity. You know, it may be expected that somebody, for instance, thinking about more patriarchal cultures... That someone goes off to work and someone is home with the children and that may not cause a certain anxiety in a a family. On the other hand, the more that we start to translate and shift and move and turn things upside down, it may become very important for a person to know how to play the notes on the piano when it comes to some of the ways that they are acting going back to that simple idea of connecting an action tendency to a basic emotion. And if if other people have no idea why a person is behaving in a particular way, especially if you're counting on them, that will start to raise distance, isolation, confusion. And I think what I was trying to get into earlier, which I hear from couples all the time, is that then someone starts to project their own narrative onto the person's behavior. And what people always say is, well, because you don't tell me what's going on, I I have to think either the worst or I have to assume. (laughs) And that is probably one of the single biggest things that gets people into trouble when there's a a lack of information. And so, so much of my professional work Especially when it comes to things like shame, where it takes time, where I'm discovering it with the individual in the moment, where they might just notice their heart, for instance, going faster. They might be able to just simply say, I'm uncomfortable right now. The metaphor that I always use is that that's as if someone's door has been closed. Someone's been banging on it, knocking on it, trying to find a key. And then all of a sudden, you start to see a bit of light creep out from the crack, and and there's immediate relief. And it's so counterintuitive, because when we are carrying shame, our nervous system is so exquisitely designed to protect us from pain that we think we're doing everything within our powers to survive it, which is why it feels so injurious when people make comments, especially about things that you feel vulnerable around. To begin to tolerate some of the vulnerability with that and to open up, that's the beginning of relationship, conscious relationship. Like I said earlier, there's this great French concept called participation mystique, which I'm sure I've mentioned before, which has to do with the ways that tribes and communities can operate in a kind of unconscious mystical participation. That's the literal translation, to mystically participate in a way of being. You can imagine going to a church, for instance, or a synagogue, or another religious place of worship. And maybe everybody knows the hymn or the music you're singing. You know, or a concert, right? To take it out of the religious realm. You go to a concert and everyone knows the words and there's this kind of bliss to being able to just dissolve into, I don't know, 40,000 people, for instance, at a, at a big rock concert or something. You know, it, it's so thrilling because we can kind of disappear into the collective. When we start to have to challenge that, when we have to start to change the ways that we kind of disappear within ourselves, which is what relationships are often about. I think that's half the reason people start to become dismayed and hopeless in relationships is because there's an inevitable friction. doesn't matter how similar you are. There is an inevitable friction when it comes to having to convey our differences. And that is deflating to the kind of mystical participation that most relationships begin in. Honeymoon phase, as everyone knows about. And I I tend to think that if, if one is carrying a lot of shame and values, and this is what I wrote about this week, if one values the connection with somebody so much for instance, if you find yourself saying something like, you are the only person that's ever understood me. Or if you meet someone later in life, for instance, maybe you're going through a divorce. Maybe you're going through a really hard time at work and you, you connect with somebody at work or someone becomes a kind of confidant and, and helps you through a kind of difficult time in your life on paper. That sounds fabulous. What a great way to start a relationship, right? Somebody comes in, you're feeling lost, disoriented, maybe you're you're changing careers, maybe you're reimagining your life and you, you feel this deep sense of connection with somebody. Well, guess what? Guess what happens when, you know, that starts to shift and real life sets in or you move in together and someone complains that you've left your socks out or the way you do the dishes, or that you're not home enough. Well, the cycle repeats itself, right? Now you're now alone with the person who made you finally feel less alone. And for so many couples, that the wind just comes out of their sails. And our first thought is, oh, did I make a mistake? And this connects, I think, to shame because our capacity to dissociate from shame is very important for our survival. I was thinking of this story that I've told many times about when I finally received this book that I've mentioned on this podcast before, written by my great uncle, that finally chronicled the murder of my grandfather's family. In the 1940s and it just so happened I was studying at the University of Vilnius in Lithuania and it just so happened that that day when this book arrived my grandmother called and she hadn't called all summer and it was an afternoon and the phone rang and I had read this book in the morning and discovered that this was where they talked about my grandfather my grandmother's late husband the loss of his family. And so I remember sitting down with her on the phone. I told her that I had had found this, and I I didn't know the extent to which she had read it, because this book had been hidden from us our whole life out of a sense of shame. The, The story, which I was always confused about, was that my grandfather didn't feel like more was kind of written about him in this book, and so he felt ashamed. And until this moment, th- that, that always kind of stuck in my mind, but it didn't quite make sense. And now, I-, I think given the theme of today's podcast, there's another layer there where the pain and the loss and the just the blackness of that story had to be hidden from the family so that we wouldn't be weighed down and pulled down into this abyss. And so I read this out loud to her on the phone, and my grandmother started wailing like a tsunami of grief came out of the phone that day. I don't think she said anything. And I read it, and I finished, and I don't remember how we finished the conversation, but later, a couple years later, and for the rest of her life, she denied ever calling me that day and said it never happened. And that she doesn't remember me having read this to her. And that's, that's very important. Carl Jung said that, that whole parts of us can disappear into the unconscious. And so many people that move for greener pastures or move to change their lives or, you know, we want to put the past behind us, right? How many times do people say that? So when we're trying to confront these action tendencies in us, which may go back for generations, whether it's in a friendship, whether it's when we're trying to change certain habits in our life, whether it has to do with just pivoting in a certain way. First of all, it's difficult. Second of all, what I always stress in my work, and I lean on the work of of Donald Calshed here, and his book, which I've mentioned before, The Inner World of Trauma, and the ways that he talks about the human being protecting themselves with these very archetypal defenses. When we challenge these parts of ourselves, what is crucial is that we at the same time and probably first acknowledge why we do the things that we do, the reasons behind them, and the very valid reasons behind them. You know, I I carry some weight. I'm a bigger guy. You know, I like to eat. It's probably one of my vices. <laughs> and and I have to imagine that that has a lot to do with my own sense of self-protection. And I always have Gabor Mate in the back of my mind when it comes to trying to, you know, look at and scrutinize parts of our life, that we cannot target the things that we do, at least wholly in a negative, pathologizing way. Uh, we can't target them Because in many ways, they're here to keep us safe. So first of all, we have to start from a place of benevolence. Second of all, when it comes to being with someone who you're trying to reach, whether it's a partner, it's not going to look like turning on a switch and and someone just all of a sudden being able to open up. And that's one of the most frustrating parts of the work that I do, especially when I'm working with a couple or someone's trying to become more conscientious around how they express their emotions, that it's never fast enough, it's most of the time quite overwhelming, and it's often a kind of meta-conversation for a long time where someone is just learning how to tolerate connecting differently to a feeling state. So instead of someone going into action, instead of someone going into their intellect, instead of somebody withdrawing, instead of somebody explaining it away, instead of, instead of somebody getting defensive, there's this kind of middle space where someone slows down And it's often very quiet and you notice a tear in somebody's eye or they notice their heart is racing fast and often someone just naming those basic initial responses to overwhelming emotion is very powerful. I can see people's posture changing, I can see uh, the partner of somebody who's listening their posture starts to change because there's hope in that. Going back to the piano metaphor, it's just learning one more note and one more way to play it differently. Which, if you look at it, not not just from the point of view of relationships, but if you look at it even from the point of view of how somebody sits within themselves, we know that the consequences of burying Things like shame can wreak havoc on our physical body. It results in gastrointestinal issues, cardiovascular issues, and loss of closeness. And so after the podcast last week and also with some of my posts the past week, you can find some more information about this on my Instagram page, at I am Mitchell Smolkin. Please come have a conversation with me there. People sort of ask, well, how do you, you know, what does it look like? Or, you know, how do you embody shame? Or I've seen so many posts about people saying, well, what what do I do when my partner doesn't want to do the work? And I think that, fair enough, If if that's how it feels, or if you're with somebody that is having a hard time opening up, I only have respect for the fatigue and difficulty sometimes in trying to get through to somebody. On the other hand, and this was a big theme for me in my own practice the past little while, we have to recognize our own misunderstanding, our own anxiety, our own failures of empathy, whether it's towards ourselves or to others, and just slowing down a bit and recognizing just how difficult it might be for people to open themselves up, to deeper layers of pain. And I wish for all of us that that could magically happen or go away or we reach some kind of nirvana when it comes to our relationship with ourselves, but that's just not how it works. That's not how the world works. Often the way it looks is it's very incremental and there is no end, there's no plateau. (laughs) And I think there's something very positive and relieving about that, at least for myself. It's an ongoing process. It's a process of discovery and rediscovery, and it's a good enough process. And some things will remain unsaid in our lives, period. There will be things we do not accomplish, there will be emotions we do not express, there will be thoughts we do not have, and there will be connections that we do not make thanks for listening today. Like I said, come on to Instagram if that's a a place that you hang out. It's one of the places that I've settled to kind of talk and round out some of these podcasts or just stay here and listen and email me info at com if you have any questions or you want to share ideas about the podcast or things you'd like me to talk about. And as usual, rate it and share it with your friends if you find this valuable. I remain faithfully yours.